I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this show is Dr. Istvan Gergeny. Istvan represented Hungary as a water polo player 96 times and was a member of teams that won the silver medal at the 1972 Munich Olympics and a gold medal at the 1973 World Championships. From 1984 to 1990, he was head coach of Upjest in the Hungarian National League, leading them to a championship in 1986. From 1991 to 1994, he was head coach of Cécile Nice Water Polo Club in the French National League, winning the championship three times. He then moved to Australia and in 1998 was appointed the Australian Women's National Water Polo Team head coach. That team went on to win the inaugural Water Polo Gold Medal for women at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. In 2004, he retired from coaching and set up a consultancy based on his hunting territory philosophy, which he created based on more than 20 years of research into team dynamics and group performance. Istvan is articulate and friendly, and as a psychotherapist, brings deep insight into the dynamics that exist within teams. There are many, many highlights from our conversation, but the one that was most special to me was reliving the gold medal game from the Sydney 2000 Olympics that I was lucky enough to be at. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Istvan Gurgany. The Great Coaches Podcast. So Istvan, it's very nice to meet you. Uh, where are you today? Same here, in Budapest. And how is things in Budapest? Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's like a midway through, we're going back to this uh, blockage. I, I'm afraid it's starting back again. Well, Let, otherwise it's really nice here. Let's talk about something more interesting then, which is I your... I think it is better. <laughs> which is your coaching. I'd like to talk about your coaching philosophies and... You, I think you've got such a fascinating story to tell. I've been looking forward to this interview um, ever since I came across your work. But I'd actually like to just start with a really high-level question because you've played and coached water polo all over the world. And you started in the 1980s when the world was a very different place. And, of course, the last 10 years or plus you've been working with corporations. So I'd like to ask you, with this background, 
what is it you think that great coaches do differently? You know, I, I studied quite a lot of things due to the, my research for the hunting territory method. And uh, the difficulty is that what you read are myths. So it's, it's not a real thing. I, I spoke to some great athletes with great coaches and the athletes told me that the book about uh, the autobiography of their coach was uh, like a, a roman or a novel and they were laughing at it they really admired the coach i don't tell the name but they told that the story was totally different so coaches who really pay attention to players and to to the process what's going on in the training field as well as as in the games they are the best coaches. They can talk all sorts of things. They can be very emotional. They can be very brave. They, they can be selfish. But what they really do is paying attention to their players and understanding what's going on the pitch and also having a, a vision about the game and being consequent enough to make things happen and giving feedbacks and building team and play. I can tell some examples, really contradicting examples from football, everyone might understand. Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger are totally different personalities. And both of them were great coaches. And Ferguson might be famous about his temper temper, but reading his own story and stories about him <clears throat> and watching or following the teams because he beat about three different teams during this 25 years of amazing career. He was very, very caring about the players and he built a core team which he was able to build the team around. So he had co-players who really understood his philosophy, who were working with him, who admired him. But I can tell Phil Jackson is the same example with very cautious and understanding coaching philosophy. Actually, probably he is the closest to me, if I may say, I'm not as famous as he is. Then I, I was a, a, a psychotherapist as well, a group and family therapy, very similar to what he's, he's done before. So I have the, quite the same understanding. I even used some tactical things he used with the triangle offense, which was a tactics and the team building uh, tool in the same time. So I don't know whether it's enough for you or I can tell other names, but I think it's enough. <laughs> no, it's perfect. I wanted to talk about tactics actually, because you coached the gold medal team in the Sydney 2000 Olympics. And I would like to say that I was there that day watching. And you were there. I was there. I was living in Sydney at the time and I was, uh, I was in the stadium and I was, the energy was amazing, especially okay. when you when the, when the team dragged you into the water at the end. I remember it. there was such joy in the stadium that day. But I, yeah, I was looking back through the articles and I, I found this quote from, from you where you said, the team didn't win because of tactics. It was because we prepared for 16 months and the team played a very conscious game and supported each other. So I wanted to ask you, in a team like water polo, what is the role of the coach? I think everywhere the role is the coach to prepare the players. You were asking about philosophy. You have to prepare the players for a long, long time and also to help them through a competition. But they have to play the game. You, you, can, you, you can see coaches screaming and yelling at the, and the uh, side of the pitch. But the players don't hear it. So 
if you don't didn't prepare the the, the team, they have to react in in, in seconds, even uh, very short times, and immediately. So you can you have to teach patterns. They understand, so they all play the same. Uh, they they all all know the same language of the game. I. I used to say to my players that the game is like jazz. Everyone has to play the the tune, and one player can always improvise. But if everyone improvises, it's like a, a cacophony. So, so what you do, you really teach, or you work out tunes together with the team. I say work out because the players are your partners. They know extremely well their their craft and you have to appreciate their knowledge and then they will appreciate you that that's that's my philosophy on the very first day when i uh, selected the team it was a tournament uh, we organized a meeting after the tournament where we announced the 20 players who were selected and I had a presentation prepared with videos, with designs about the game I wanted to play, about the, even about some uh, biomechanic details. So I wanted to change their body position in the water in order to be able to play the mobile game I was a fanatic of. And I told them I won't, don't want to rely on referees. I don't want to play for exclusions. What I want is a spectacular game where we have to score action goals so we don't rely on the referees. You know, in Monopolo, it's a quite significant thing. And actually, that happened. We scored a lot of decisive action goals. And what I've done, for example, you talk about tactics, from the very first training games and uh, competition games, tournament games, I uh, used game analysis together with the team. So it wasn't a presentation, it was a discussion. I used the game analysis as a catalyst for discussion. And they, they understood this approach uh, uh, at the beginning. Obviously, they didn't talk that much, but after they, they saw that it wasn't reprimanded if someone didn't agree with me. And uh, so what we did some months before, we edited the opposition team's games, uh, defense, uh, 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 offense, extra man defense, extra man offense, and we gave it to small groups and they had to come up with tactics. And they did come up with tactics, and I could uh, practically wasn't able to add anything because they realized what they had to play. So we went to the Olympics with quite a, a, a deep knowledge about what we had to play. Obviously, I had a role. We had short briefs, and we had feedbacks, and I, I had the luxury of changing the team around. Uh, so it, it was pretty thorough and it was really something we did together. I had this quote I found in, in one of the newspapers from that. And you said, you told the team, don't focus on the goal because it blinds you. And when you're blinded, you'll miss the necessary steps that lead to the goal. And I thought it was a great quote because it's about focusing on the process, not the outcome. And I wonder if you could just give your thoughts and maybe some advice to other coaches on focusing on the process first. Yeah, actually, th this, this quote was in a book uh, some months before. The, it was published in a book some months before the games. They asked me to write a quote, and I am amazed that you read it. But really, that was my philosophy because I, I knew that uh, teams who would talk about winning something all the time they got paralyzed and you, what i uh, say that it's absolutely true for me other coaches are talking about winning always and it doesn't mean that they don't win 
but I, I, I wanted them to understand the details of the game, the details of their own roles. And this is something the hunting territory is about. So when I advise uh, corporate teams, I involve them into self-analysis and self-diagnosis, almost like game analysis. Istvan, you're fascinating because you were a very accomplished player. You led a team to a gold medal, but you also, as a scientist and a researcher, developed hunting territory theory, which is used so widely today in sport, it's probably not known as that name, but it is everywhere. Could you talk a little bit about the theory and how you apply it to to understanding team performance? Uh, I'm amazed how much you prepared for this talk or discussion, and I am very proud that you did. And it's very interesting what you're saying, because obviously you know the name David Parkin, who is a hero in AFL. And my first uh, appearance in the uh, Australian sports science stage was that I was in Melbourne and Peter Spence, who was the program manager at the VIS, invited me to give a presentation on hunting territory. On the first year when I was in Australia, I wasn't the national coach yet. And he invited all the professional team coaches and some other coaches to the VIS to my presentation. And it became a a series of 11 lectures. And David Parkin, who just won the AFL title some months before and the competition, the next competition didn't even start. He attended the first meeting. And from then on, uh, he was amazing. Actually, he came to that final you were at, and he wrote me the most beautiful congratulation letter I ever received. And uh, saying that that was his biggest sport experience, which wasn't true, I think, because he... What a, a final as a player with Carton and as a coach as well. So I don't think it can be comparable with the water polo. There was a lot of energy that day. There was there was something very special about that team. So I can understand why the famous, the iconic David Parkin might have said that. And I can I can close my eyes and remember being there. <laughs> yeah, it's true because that 15,000 people was the same as 100,000 in the football open air football stadium because I couldn't hear my own voice. But returning back to David Park and he told me, I think on the third or fourth session, that I didn't say much which was he wouldn't have used, but it, it he saw the big picture and the system at once. What he didn't know. He just did things by common sense. And actually, I think it's common sense. And it was, I, I was rather proud that he said that. But uh, he became very close and I could actually give him amazing feedbacks during this time. So, yes, hunting territory is used by the good coaches because they they systematically thinking. So they see the big picture, they see the role of uh, players' relationships and they can read the good and the wrong patterns uh, from a group dynamics point of view as well. Could you explain it for us, just perhaps for people that don't know anything about it, if yeah, you could yeah, just yeah. describe it? So the thing is that uh, the team on the pitch is a system. They They... The players' relationships, uh, not that whether they like each other or not, that how much they appreciate each other, how much they read each other's movements. It's very important because uh, if players... uh, why, Why is it hunting territory? Because it recognizes the fact that we are territorial animals. And in elite sport is even more... Uh, uh, true because 
players are really very territorial. They want to be exceptional. They want to be the best. They want to score the most goals and so on. But if they are logged into themselves, which is a, the tunnel vision is a, is a characteristics of, of the selfishness or on the, if, if you really just focus on yourself, it means that you don't read others, other players' movements. So you would give short passes or too long or too early or too late passes. So the team is not working well. You might be the best player on the pitch, but the team is not functioning, particularly now in this total game. So a player has to play attack, defense, midfield in the same time. It means that it's really crucial that they read the game. Also, you mentioned at the beginning that you understood the hierarchy, the importance of the hierarchy, and it is very important that. Uh, if if at the top of the hierarchy some stars, media stars who don't perform well, the team wouldn't win. And if you don't appreciate the players who might not be spectacularly on the top of the hierarchy, like uh, an Iniesta or a Xavi, who are the game uh, uh, team uh, game players, or, or how do you call it the uh, game makers, uh, then then you won't appreciate their performance, and you you won't give them the same freedom as you would give it to a to a Messi or to a, a Ronaldo, and they need that that uh, freedom as well. Plus, they have to be your real partners, and same as, as the as the middle of the defense who are calling the defense and people don't know they are calling it, but they do. And if you don't give them trust, uh, then then the defense will collapse or they don't appreciate their contribution. So you really have to think in system where you realize the importance of all of the players. And even in attack, if you play every game to the, your key player, it will be very, very, very easy for the opposition to block your attack because all the focus and all the passes are given to the particular player, so he won't be able to perform on big games. But if you uh, allow the, the, the team to play a more free attack, for example, I mentioned the triangle offense that, that and that it had not just the tactical. Uh, uh, importance, but also a group dynamic, uh, group dynamic importance as well. So, uh, if Michael Jordan got the ball in defense, he he had to pass it to someone, and then he might have received or might not have received. It meant that other players had opportunities to shoot as well. And uh, when this whole thing started, Phil Jackson told to to uh, Michael Jordan, do you want to be the best player of the world or you want to win a competition? And Jordan said, yes, I want to win. Then pass the bloody ball toward Phil Jackson. And he said, I would pass, but they can't shoot. And then Phil Jackson told him that that's my job, that he, he, he would be able to score as well. And he did that. So he had an amazing team balance. If you like basketball, you know what I'm talking about. And that this is team balance. So there were games which weren't won by uh, Michael Jordan. Other other games were won by him. And that gave an amazing uh, uh, balance to the team. And this is what what I did as well. My key players scored a winning goal. Uh, uh, Bridget Gustafsson against the Russians, but she didn't score uh, on the final. She scored one, but it wasn't allowed. But she passed and she, she drew defense on herself and she did a lot of things which weren't spectacular, but other players were able to score and that's why we won. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Istvan, I watched a great TED Talk where you used your hunting territory theory to explain what happened on the Deepwater Horizon rig. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. It's a wonderful story, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes because it explains how the t- teams that are competing with each other rather than co- coalescing around the same goal can, can really cause catastrophe. But I actually, when I was also preparing, I, I rediscovered your work through a video where you described what happened to the Brazil 2006 soccer team when they spectacularly failed. Um, And I wondered whether you could just talk a little bit about your analysis and what you learnt about that team and why they failed. Yeah, I I am completely amazed and honoured that you did this deep research because, for example, the Brazil case, which was planned to be a movie, and a documentary. And I I have, I think, 36 games between 2002 and 2006, what the Brazil team played, because I did a thorough game analysis about the dynamics of the team. And we started to make that movie with an English company, and we weren't able to raise 80,000 pounds, so the whole project failed, even if it could be still a a sensational story because it didn't age. So it it was very interesting because uh, they won the the 2002 World Cup with great team play and uh, also with the other Ronaldo who was the perhaps the best attacker back that time. And uh, he played extremely well on the final. And then the, the life was going on and other players became key players on their own, like Ronaldinho, Kaká and uh, some other players. And also there were some great players like Zé Roberto and some others who had a key role in, in those games and no one recognized their role in it, in them. And uh, in 2005, there was a, a Confederation Cup where the coach didn't take the older players. Three, three great players were missing and uh, the coach took a, a young team which played a magnificent, glorious game, winning 4-1, to one, I think, in the finals against a good Argentina. So uh, a new uh, hierarchy emerged during those tournaments, uh, this, uh, during the tournament. And on the top of it, it was uh, Ronaldinho and Zero Bato, they, they were the real team leaders. And Ronaldinho, who was a very, uh, like a Mozart-like player, uh, he played an amazing team play he never ever did before. And he was a real leader and unselfish. And if you uh, thoroughly watch the games, you can find, you could find how well he had the team to play well. And then then the coach, ignoring that a new team was born in 2005, brought back the old players. 
Ronaldo was still uh, struggling with a, an injury and even psychologically for individual reasons. And he wasn't physically prepared for the World, World Cup. And he, he made him again team captain, putting down Ronaldinho, who took it really badly. And they, the, the, the players who won with a very strong team play, the 2005 Confederation Cup, were put into an assistant role around Ronaldinho, who, who lost a lot of balls. No one wrote about it, but I counted the lost possessions by him. So all what these great players, Kaka and Ronaldinho and the others did, were serving a, a poorly playing Ronaldo and ran back to cover for him. So they practically were even humiliated why they were the reason for the poor performance. And it's an amazing story because they all adored, adored uh, Ronaldo. Ronaldinho names was chosen because of Ronaldo by him. And they really adored him. You couldn't read a word blaming him during the whole tournament from the players. Others blamed him. Anyway, so the story is that if you ignore the how the team process you were talking about earlier, then you, you don't realize how the team transforms during a period and you don't realize it, then you kill it. If you spoke to a coach who was uh, taking over a new team and that coach really wanted to improve the culture and the playing style of the team, what would you advise to them to do first? It's interesting you're asking, but when I went to France to coach Cassanis, before I took the position, I was invited for a discussion about the job. And then I, I went to games and with a small notebook, I was making notes during the game so that players watched me very cautiously. And it's not used in Voropolo, it wasn't used back then. And I made notes and I started to have a clear view on the team, who are the players I can build on, what are the uh, hidden treasures in the team, what, what is the style they are able to play, which direction I have to move if I want to change something. So I, I had a quite clear vision on the team before I took that position. And I did the same thing with the Australian team because it's also a part of the story. In 98, January 98, the World Championships were in, in Perth and I was the, just the national junior men's coach back then. But I was testing my hunting territory game analysis on games. So I analyzed several teams' games, and uh, including the Australian men's and women's team. And uh, uh, after the tournament, I was offered both positions. I had the luxury of choosing between the men's and the women's position. And everyone was surprised that I chose the women because in the nobility range, women's water polo wasn't really appreciated and they didn't understand why I chose the women. But I, I saw the values of the women team and I saw the opposition teams as well. And I thought that there was a chance to win a medal with them because they were very talented players, but they were fractured by rivalry and even, you know, the state rivalries, you know, in Australia, it's really bad. And the, the girls, some of the talented players really talk to each other. And I thought, oh, that's, I, I can fix it. And so that's, I, I choose rather the women team than the men's team. How did you fix it? That, uh, yeah, it's, it's that. This is what is coming from from uh, sci social psychiatry. That it's it's like you help a family to deal with with a uh, mentally 
I would say, ill person, although I never uh, took them as ill persons. Often it's just a behavior problem. But uh, so, so you deal with the family to, to make them understand the dynamics of the family that the patient might be just a scapegoat of family problems. And uh, uh, what you do that you create a dialogue within the family, which never happened before. And you, you, you make them focus on each other to pay attention to each other's values rather than failures or weaknesses. And this is what you do with the team as well. And uh, with team, game analysis, because everyone, everything is on the video, you know. When players come out from the water, they rewrite the, the game by self-justification. Uh, so they have a vision of the game which, which uh, justify themselves, and it's not necessarily the truth. But when they, they start to look uh, cautiously and thoroughly into the game videos, then they realize what really happened and that they rewrote the story in their mind in order to justify their behavior or their performance. And it took, it took uh, uh, some time, but then it, it is, in, I, I talk too much perhaps, no? No, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm sorry, I'm trying to not talk so I don't interrupt you. So I, I continue that because this is just one part of what you do in order to fix team problems. The other thing is that you have the opportunity to structure the team training. So I, I had uh, stationary trainings in ski sessions and I would put players together who would never choose each other in small groups because they had tensions. Particularly, I can tell the story of that. I had three great center forwards in the team and uh, coaches uh, switched center forwards, so they changed them in order to keep a strong player in a center forward position. So they rarely play with each other. And I thought it was a luxury. And actually I played that, you can say, triangle offense where I we were playing, a, I called a whirlpool type attack where the center forwards actually stepped out providing space to the drivers to get in, to the other center forwards to get in and play with each other. And I didn't centralize the, the program because I thought that I have to uh, leave the players to live in their families because they won't be able to continue their career as a professional player in women's water polo. So I didn't want to break their, uh, their life by centralizing for two years. And also, I thought that if I create three centers which use my methods in Perth, Brisbane, and Sydney, then I would be able to invite and involve the juniors and the sub-juniors. So rather than having 20 chosen players, at the end there were 100 players involved into my programs with the center coaches to use the methods I wanted them to use. And uh, so anyways, because they we weren't together all the time, I took the two Sydney-based center forward with me to Perth. We would go there for three days and we would train and watch videos together and uh, I would explain what I wanted from there. But also we had drills they had to practice together to, in order to read each other's moves, understand each other where they want the pass to and what rhythm and all sorts of things. And, and I did several times that then I took the Perth base center forward to Sydney and we did the same thing. And we had, we had the training camps as well. Uh, 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 before the Olympics, we stayed together like a residential camp for several months. And I, I used to practice these things regularly. So they got used to each other. They, they started to appreciate each other. We had little games 
uh, where I put them together when two or three players competed other other little groups and they badly wanted to win so they had to play together they didn't have a choice you know because if you don't win the whole team would tease you for a whole week so it's more important in a team like a, a real uh, competition game uh, because in their little world they have to be the best so I, I used all sorts of things but it went for two years so it's you really wanted to change the relationship patterns it's not a cognitive thing it's a lot more than that you say it's not a cognitive thing but oftentimes athletes or high achieving athletes and even high achieving coaches can really struggle with self-doubt and i'm interested to know as both a coach and a psychotherapist how you've helped your athletes deal with self-doubt you know if we prepared well, if you had uh, challenges in training sessions, in training games, you analyzed the tournament games, then it, it, it didn't increase the doubt, it actually decreased it because they, I could show them what they really did well and I didn't even have to point it out. I ha obviously, I had the chance to edit the game so they could see what they regularly done well and the others as well. So it actually gave them confidence. They could see that what we created together was working. Yeah. And I had self-doubt as well, like a coach, you might have a, a facade what you show, show to the outside world, but within it, it's really difficult. You are under a huge pressure and it's actually very, very lonely work being a head coach or a head of a company. It's very lonely. I hear a lot of coaches Sorry. talk about the imposter syndrome and how they feel. Even coaches that have been so successful, they talk about this imposter syndrome. And I find it, I guess I find it fascinating. They might not talk, even talk about it because it's not something you would admit. But every morning, for example, we were at the, the Kuana waters where we trade north of Brisbane and every morning at five o'clock or 5.30 I was walking on the beach and you know they are empty beaches because so long is the course and that's when I and even in the in the Olympic village I would walk every morning by myself and this is how you redress yourself <laughs> for the next challenge and uh, yeah, so I really supported the players, so the, and, and also it was, real, it was realistic. I didn't tell them that you were great and fantastic what you're doing, no. I just showed them how they improved, and it was a lot more than just telling how they good they were. And also they didn't depend on me, they had to be self, they had to be strong enough, and also, it was, it was very interesting, again, because they were living by themselves. I didn't have the chance to enter into their rooms or changing room. So they had to learn how to fix team conflicts as well. And because we, we handled very difficult conflicts at the beginning together, uh, in training camps or after tournaments, then they learned that they didn't have another choice than dealing with it. We lost the uh, World Cup final uh, in Canada uh, December 1999 and we played well, there was a, a huge pressure by the referee but I learned that there was a, a conflict at the night uh, before the, before the uh, final in the night within the team and I didn't know about it before. So I, I had the choice to close my eyes and avoid the conflict or rather face it and we did face it and it was quite painful but I am glad we did it because then uh, I didn't know, I still don't know what happened on, on during those eight days. They fixed their problems, but they had to. Istvan, if I could, you've been very generous with your time, but if I could ask you one final question. And 
it's around legacy. And what do you believe is the legacy that you're leaving as a coach? The legacy is that I, I was last year in Australia and met all the girls and now journalists uh, do interviews now, remembering to the 20 years anniversary. And all the girls talk about the experience very happily and proudly. And you mentioned the end of the game, uh, the real love and happiness, which is obviously all the team would celebrate with the same happiness, but it was very thorough. So at the end of the game, for example, the two team captains swam straight away to the bench and they embraced me. So I have a photo when I am embraced by two women from both of my cheeks in the same time. And you cannot have better. And the player who scored a winning goal, Bridget, uh, Yvette Higgins, he drew me into the water. So it wasn't me celebrating myself jumping into the water. She drew me in the, in the water. And actually that was, if you have a minute, I am very proud you talk about legacy. It's very, uh, I think it's, it's uh, something about it that... Yvette was the third center forward. Bridget Gustafsson and Simon Hankin were probably amongst the best center forwards of the world. And Yvette was small, but very, very nasty and just with full willing of winning and very clever and lefty. So she was always swimming on the center forwards and, you know, it's, they need territories. If a player swims there too early, then it's crowded. So I took her uh, before the semifinals, I think, at night for a walk. And I talk her, taught her that you're playing extremely well, but just be a bit more patient and you will win, uh, score the winning goal. Obviously, I didn't mean it. But I wanted to tell her that just be patient. And she scored uh, the goal, winning goal in the dying second. And then we were invited to a function by the Olympic Committee. And obviously the girls drank some champagne uh, beforehand. And she, she pulled me into an empty room. She kissed me and she told me, I scored because you told me so. What an amazing story. Isn't it? I, Dr. Istvan Gorgani, I would like to thank you for your time today. It's been a, an amazing conversation and I can't wait to share it with everybody. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you so much. That's a pleasure and particularly that you were so very well prepared. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, it's Jim. We hope you enjoyed listening to this special release edition of The Great Coaches Podcast with Dr. Istvan Gergeny. It's our tribute to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the gold medal game won by the Australian women's water polo team at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. The key takeaways of our discussion with Istvan for me were getting star players to share the territory on the field with all players, dealing with the competing groups within a team, and the insights from his analysis of the Brazilian soccer team's 2006 loss in the Football World Cup final. If you'd like to hear more about his hunting territory theory, you'll find an excellent TED Talk online where, using his theory, he explains the Deepwater Horizon disaster. We'll add a link in the show notes for you. Coming up next on The Great Coaches Podcast, we're taking a look at advice on coaching through a new lens that we're calling our In Focus series. Our first In Focus guest is Cameron Schwab. Cameron is a CEO, a leadership coach, and a strategist. He works with CEOs and emerging leaders to achieve high levels of trust as the basis of high performance. At 24, he was appointed CEO of the famous Richmond Football Club in the Australian Football League, the youngest in the history of the game. Over his career as a high-profile sports administrator, he has taken on some of the sport's most difficult and daunting challenges and established a track record of building teams and organisations while navigating periods of genuine adversity and complexity. 
Cameron is a legacy-focused leader who has bounced back from both personal and professional setbacks his whole career. It's a generous and inspiring conversation that we just loved. I remember early days, and because uh, I was I was I was young into leadership, that people said, "Oh, you can't form too close relationships with your people," and that was it was almost like a warning sign. And and I think it came a little bit out of military training. That so because of you know you had the sort of the World War Two, then you had the generation after that, and then I'm really because I'm into it young. I had the generation almost. It was before my time, and and so most of the leaders who I were in and around were very much um, control command type leaders, which almost by definition says don't get too close, you know, don't get too close. Um, where where I think we're now we're we're so far past that, yes, because you can you can have uh, really close relationships, but as long as you understand that at some point a decision will have to be made. And just before we go, if you have any feedback on any of our Great Coaches episodes or you know a great coach who has a unique story to share, we'd love to hear from you. You'll find our contact details in the show notes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.